Hello and welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, for coming back. I'm so glad to be back on the air, to be producing these shows regularly. There's so much going on, and I feel like those couple of months when I was away, I was really missing the boat on a lot of key issues. But I'm very, uh, very happy to receive positive feedback from people. Glad that people are uh, sticking with the show and really enjoying it and enjoying the content we're bringing. If you, if you do, and if you really do like uh, what we're doing, please do consider becoming a subscriber to Counterpunch Magazine. Uh, The magazine is really kind of a rarity these days. Very few places are doing print magazines anymore, and I kind of like it. I like having those laying around my house. I pick them up from time to time and remember, oh, I forgot to read that column, or oh, I want to reread what Jeff Sinclair wrote that one month, or whatever it may be. I like that. I think there are a lot of people in, in, in the U.S. and around the world who like that as well, and if you're one of them, please do consider doing that. It's a great way to support Counterpunch and to support the work of course the website is there with new content every single day and you know uh, that that doesn't produce itself so uh any any contributions are always great you could pick up the phone and call becky in the counterpunch office you could do it online you could use paypal and all those other methods so please do consider it uh also just a quick plug for my own patreon page i do another podcast there uh patreon.com forward slash eric Dreitzer. you could go there to find a whole bunch more work in addition to counterpunch radio if you are so inclined. Uh, Anyway, let me turn to my guest today. I'm very happy to speak with him. You know, I I hate to come off as a fanboy because, you know, I don't like to do that. But in this particular case, I am a fan and I have been for years now. If I think back on how long I've been following uh, this this gentleman's work, it's been, well, more than a decade now. So um, anyway, I'm I'm very happy to welcome Dar Jamail onto the show. Uh, Dar is a uh, staff reporter with Truth Out. His column is I think essential reading every week and I'm going to get into what what the mentality it requires to write such a column uh, here in a few seconds but I will recommend also uh, his books uh, the work that he did in Iraq I think is unparalleled uh, the will to resist soldiers who refuse to fight in Iraq and Afghanistan from 2009 also beyond the green zone dispatches from an unembedded journalist in occupied Iraq and uh, his third book the mass destruction of Iraq why it is happening and who is responsible. Now, that is in the past. We also have to be paying attention to the forthcoming book uh, from Dar, The End of Ice, that is going to be published with the New Press. Very, very important work that he's doing. Very happy to have him on the show. Dar Jamil, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Thanks so much, Eric. I really appreciate that warm reception. So uh, I kind of teased it there in my introduction, but I do want to ask you, um, before we get into the specifics about, you know, all of the different aspects of climate change and the various, uh, well, how should we put it, the various difficult realizations that one has to come to in tackling that subject, I want to ask you, in the, in the last few years that you've been writing this regular column on climate change, seemingly with apocalyptic uh, implications, I kind of want to ask you, what's the mentality like? What kind, of, what kind of mental state do you have to put yourself in to write about these things every single week, considering the vast implications therein? That's a really good and important question, and I'm glad that you lead with it, because it's one that you know, excuse me, doing this kind of writing has had a dramatic impact on my life, both how I live, where I live, and and why I do what I do. And, and I've through trial and error, I've, I've had to go through this process often by just doing too much writing and not doing other things to kind of balance it out. And what I've had to find is a very fine line that I walk between doing this research and writing these climate dispatches and other stories about how fast climate change is moving along and then find a way to balance that out with uh, sort of a recipe on the other side of that that includes things like weekly time out in nature on a very regular basis time outside right where i live because i live in the the forest in uh, northern olympic peninsula of, of washington state and chatting with things that this upsetting news that's coming at us on a regular basis now with confidants and other people that understand what's happening and and sharing that and processing through it you know so it's i mean we are all in a situation those of us reporting regularly on climate disruption and how fast it's moving along 
all of us are being traumatized to one extent or another. And I'm not the only one talking about this. It is starting to kind of seep its way into the to the discourse on this subject. And, and for me personally, I've had to find a way to counterbalance the intensity of this subject matter with life and good things and, and happiness and, and some joy. Because when I haven't done that, I just fall into depression. I can totally understand that. And part of the reason I ask is to get a sense of your own mentality, your own perspective, but also in helping other people kind of wrestle with this subject matter, because I've spoken with a number of people and there is a certain commonality, a certain shared experience that a lot of people, maybe not everybody, but a lot of people have. And that is a feeling of impending doom, right? A feeling that when you address these subjects, when you research them, when you study them, you start to feel a certain kind of hopelessness. And I think that's one of the dangers in the way that we approach the subject is that it's so overwhelming. It's so seemingly insurmountable and it's so all encompassing that it can be incredibly demobilizing. Absolutely. And that's, you know, it's a very easy place to fall into. And I've absolutely fallen into it myself, sometimes for a couple of months at a time and just barely been able to kind of keep churning out my work uh, for truth out. And that is absolutely not sustainable that, you know, psychologically, spiritually, mentally, it's just not sustainable. And so I've had to really find ways and to accept the fact that I'm regularly going through various stages of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, five stages of grief. And, and again, it's, it's you know, in, in the past, it's been sort of uh, taboo for journalists to talk about themselves and their feelings and include themselves in the story or the reporting. But I think given the immensity and the intensity of this topic, you know, all of us personally are forced to do this. And I think that yeah, and, and sometimes I bring this into the lead of some of my dispatches and share some of that with my readers. And, and I get really positive response when I do, because any again, anyone really paying attention to this is is having to grapple grapple on an existential level with what's actually happening to the planet. Yeah, exactly right. And and just the final point on that before we get into some of the specifics on the issues is that, you know, at least speaking for myself, um, it was one thing to understand the issue conceptually, but for me, particularly when my son was born, it made me think about climate change in an even different way because now I had a physical sort of manifestation of what future generations were living with me, right, in my house, evidence in front of me every day. And it made me really, again, center the issue of climate change in my thinking because I have a very tangible reason to fight on this issue. Absolutely. And I, I think that's fantastic. And, and you know, to to look at your son and think, hey, there's a high probability that this person will be here in 2100, you know, and you and I won't and and uh, other folks. But here's here is the future generation right here, you know, and and it adds that much more urgency to our work. Uh, I, I think that's a, a really amazing perspective that you get with that. Indeed. Now, um, let's get into some of the specifics. And um, I want to begin with a, with a piece that you wrote, I guess it's now a couple of months ago, but um, it's one that I think is really critical for people. Uh, let's see. It was, uh, while Trump denies the world burns the state of the climate in 2018. And the reason I kind of wanted to focus on this piece here in the beginning is because I think it gives a very good overview of some of the trends that we're seeing. I mean, we, we've seen trends for now a few years, but seemingly each and every one of them is accelerating and accelerating at a pace that I think a lot of people didn't expect. So can we talk a little bit in very kind of at the macro level, some of those issues that you were bringing up in your state of the climate in 2018 and some of these trends that you're following? Absolutely. That's a great place to start. 2017 was the second hottest year on record for Earth in the third straight year that all 50 U.S. states had above average temperatures for the entire year. Um, it's also worth noting now that 17 of the 18 hottest years ever recorded have happened since the year 2000. So think about that, talking about trends. Uh, also, five the five warmest years for the contiguous 48 United States have all happened since just 2006, so in the last 12 years. So those are a few of them. And then I've been following the Arctic very closely as well, which I know we're going to talk about. Um, and it's also worth noting that December of 2017, the last month of that year, 
was again by far the hottest December ever recorded for the entire state of Alaska. Not usually how you think about Alaska, but the whole state was over 15 degrees Fahrenheit above its 20th century average. Um, since and and since I won't, I won't get into 2018 because so much has happened just in the first two months of this year, mostly up in the Arctic. But that that it's clear the trends, the macro trends is that everything is heating up. It's going faster. Again, we're on the sharp end of the hockey stick graph. All, all the trends are going straight up as far as global temperature and country temperatures and 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 uh, things along those lines. And one of the things that I felt this particular, it, it, well, in the last few months, actually, that I really haven't thought about before and haven't felt in my own life is that climate change impacts in the Arctic are having a direct impact just in my own life. I mean, uh, in December, around Christmas, New York and the entire East Coast was absolutely frigid, like, like you know, unseasonably cold, brutally cold. And yet in the Arctic, it was warm. And in the Arctic, the cold air had been displaced and it had swung down. And we had this polar vortex that we seem to be having every year. And so I think that climate change is now transforming as an issue from a complete abstraction to something that I think is impacting people's lives on an everyday basis. And that's just in the developed world. I mean, in the in the global south, we're beginning to see climate refugees and so forth. So can you talk a little bit about how this issue is now becoming more of an immediate one for more and more people? Well, without a doubt, and even within the United States now, and, and we just out, because of the last year and specifically the these these Arctic blasts that you guys out there on the eastern seaboard are experiencing now with regularity and the in, incredible flooding from Harvey across Texas and other parts of the South from other hurricanes this past summer. I mean, just in the last, just in 2017, there were a million, what I think we could refer to as climate refugees within the United States alone, the people displaced from Harvey uh, and, and other disasters like this. If you total them all up, it's actually over a million in the contiguous 48 US states just in 2017 alone. And when when we talk about, you know, the Arctic and, uh, you know, one of the sayings that's come from some of the scientists studying what's happening up there, they say what happens in the Arctic doesn't stay in the Arctic. So the Arctic vortex, which is basically in the wintertime when the jet stream kind of makes little squiggles and sticks right around basically the Arctic Circle, it hems in all that Arctic cold air up there. But as we've destabilized temperatures and changed the equilibrium, that jet stream is now making big periodic loops far down into the, the, the hemisphere, way further down than it used to. And so that's what you're experiencing there. And, and then what happened in December when that Arctic air made it all the way down to Florida. And there was a day, and I wrote a piece about this, where there were temperatures in Florida that were actually colder than it was in Anchorage, Alaska on the exact same day. And so when things like that are happening and when things like this February, when it's we've had above freezing temperatures at the North Pole and the sun's not even up yet up there. So they're still in the depths of winter. That's when, you know, things are very much out of balance. No doubt about it. Uh, very much out of balance indeed. Now, I've had Robert Hunziker on this show a couple of times talking about polar ice and why he's so concerned about polar ice. I know you've been writing about it for a long time, including in, in your most recent piece. So I want to talk a little bit about that. I mean, we hear a lot about the, the polar ice being at a record low, um, but I think that there's still a lack of understanding broadly within the public imagination about what that actually means. So give us a little understanding of of what the the lack of polar ice means and what it might be an early warning sign of and what effects that will have. Well, talking specifically about the Arctic sea ice, it, you know, as as many people, probably most people that follow climate change know, this is, it, you know, it's so important because of the albedo effect where it, it acts as a big mirror when it has full coverage and it reflects sunlight back into space. And then as we warm the temperatures and the waters underneath that ice, that ice is melting now very rapidly. So more of that dark ocean is exposed. So instead of reflecting that heat back in, in that radiation back into space, it's being absorbed into the ocean, which of course creates a, 
uh, a self-reinforcing feedback loop, warms the ocean more, melts the ice faster, lets in more heat, warms the ocean more, and so it goes, dot, dot, dot. And so as that's happening, that's one of the big factors that's causing the destabilization that we just talked about regarding the Arctic vortex. But then it's also having biological consequences and dramatic impacts on the food chain of the Arctic. So there's less polar bears. They're having to swim more to find food. It's a different different fish and other different marine life are making their way up into the Arctic. And, and some of the Arctic's life is then going into other places. So we're having these marine migrations and that's affecting the food web. And then as we warm atmospheric temperatures up there, the permafrost in the Arctic is, is uh, warming up very, very rapidly. So you've got, as we speak, more than 30 villages in Alaska alone that are going to have to be moved because the permafrost that they've been built upon is literally thawing and melting out from underneath them. And, and so there's a whole new set of, of refugees, most of them being Alaska natives. So these are some of the implications. We talked about the weather implications of the polar vortex. And then there's also been studies released more recently that link the changes in the Arctic and specifically the loss of the sea ice. That's even a big factor now in causing things like the massive ongoing drought that's besetting California. Indeed. I mean, it, it certainly is connected. It's, uh, you know, really the Earth as, as, as one large living organism is not exactly a novel idea. Uh, you know, people have been talking about that for many decades, and actually cultures have been talking about that for many, many uh, millennia. But be that as it may, I want to I wanna think a little bit more about this ice uh, issue, because one of the things that I particularly find really terrifying is uh, this issue of methane, because while the we, we have this albedo effect obviously and and the more the more um of uh, the sun's energy that gets trapped the more melt you get and the more you know the feedback loop continues but when you throw into that mix the fact that methane is being released methane that's been locked under this arctic ice and in that permafrost that that is being released that is accelerating things in an almost exponential way and i wonder to what extent are people really beginning to now grasp just how dangerous the methane effect is I think overall, I mean, there's there's plenty of scientists that are watching this extremely closely, and I've interviewed several of them, both for articles as well as for my book. Uh, people like Natalia Shikova, who was with the University of Alaska Fairbanks and their Arctic Research Program, <clears throat> excuse me, who's following it very closely under the Eastern Siberia shelf, <clears throat> excuse me. And there's plenty of others. I think the the average person tracking climate change may not be so in tune with methane. And so basically what's the issue is that uh, primarily in the shallow seabeds where uh, subsea permafrost is, is located, it's, it contains a massive amount of methane hydrates frozen into that ice. And so as, we, as, as the sea ice recedes and shrinks, and exposes more of that area to direct sunlight. And as the water temperature is warm, that methane is now starting to be released. And methane is a far more potent greenhouse gas than is CO2. On a five-year time scale, it's 105 times more potent of a, of a greenhouse gas. And on a 20-year time scale, it's still dramatically more potent than CO2. So this is why it's so worrisome. Another reason is that during the the uh, the Permian mass extinction, also known as the Great Dying, it was the single worst mass extinction event in the planet's history. Uh, more than 90% of life on Earth was wiped out. And the, the key trigger for that was when atmospheric temperatures warmed enough and then these this methane releases began and it jacked the temperature up another several degrees Celsius. And then that was really the major trigger of what killed off most of the life on Earth. And what's worrisome is we've essentially replicated that process. We filled the atmosphere with way more CO2 than it naturally has in it, although we've done it instead of over 80,000 years, which is what it took during, took during the Permian mass extinction, we've done it in under 250 and are still doing it every single year. And so what's happening is we're watching now as the Arctic melts and then some of the subsea methane is beginning to release and it's, and it's amplifying and speeding up, 
um, we are basically watching that process of the, the Permian mass extinction begin to unfold. And that's that's why it has so many people so very concerned. No doubt. And, and in fact, speaking of, you know, quote unquote, feedback loops, one of the other things that I find particularly um, uh What's the, what's the word? Uh, negative, you know, a negative reflection on human beings and the way that we handle this issue. Uh, the fact that the lack of polar ice, particularly, you know, in the Arctic, the lack of ice is now leading to an increased extraction of fossil fuels. Now a seemingly untapped reservoir of oil and, and gas and so forth that the Americans and the Canadians and the Russians and the, the, the Norwegians and others are scrambling for. So in the midst of this acceleration, you have these forces that seeking profit are going to accelerate it even further. Right. It's, it's, it's almost, it's a man-made positive feedback loop. I really, I really like that you point that out is it's insane. I mean, just this last summer alone, late summer, there were two records set. There was for the first time ever a, uh, well, I'm sorry, last summer as well as uh, uh, once it got cold again up there. Uh, but in the summer, for the first time, a ship, a, a liquefied natural gas tanker went all the way across the Arctic uh, in open seas and, and did so in record time. And then there was another instance when once it started to freeze back up that another uh, fossil fuel tanker made it all the way through without the aid of an icebreaker. So uh, again, and that's just going to speed things up. And then, of course, we have the madness of the Trump administration that are, I'm sure, salivating about how, how can we find a way to get up there and start drilling once that sea ice is reduced enough that it's not going to pose a threat to the rigs. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the insanity of the Trump administration is almost beyond words on on this issue. Um, and I want to return to that maybe on the um, uh, after the break. But before we go to that, I want to ask about another element in this equation that I think is also I, I mean, a lot of people do talk about it. It's not some secret, but I think it's often minimized the impact. And that's the impact of agriculture and agricultural production and production methods. Uh, seemingly, we have an intractable problem here. We have billions of people that need to be fed. We have a food production system that is accelerating climate change. And those people most in need of being fed are the ones who are most likely to be negative negatively impacted by climate, uh, climate change. So can you speak a little bit about the, uh, the agricultural and, and, and food production system and how that's driving these changes we're seeing in the climate as well? It is very much so. Uh, just the beef industry alone, the, the amount of cattle on the planet, and then how much water and land it takes, and then all of the resources that have to go into uh, making that work on an industrial scale to feed uh, massive numbers of people. Uh, that's a huge problem. So uh, the, the amount of methane released from cattle itself actually rivals the amount of emissions created by the fossil fuel industry itself. And a lot of people aren't aware of that, but that is a very staggering and true statistic. So that's obviously a huge issue, as well as a potential solution to start some mitigation actions. But other, other issues is we look at what's happening to the Amazon and the amount of deforestation happening there is at a record pace because they can't chop down that the 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 rainforest the biggest rainforest on the planet fast enough to create enough pasture for beef cattle. Uh, they're intentionally burning it, intentionally uh, uh, clear cutting, and and that's a huge problem because if you take that forest away, uh, you know that instead of sequestering carbon from the atmosphere as forests do, you're literally uh, releasing all that carbon now up into the atmosphere, as well as then putting cattle on it, which is another kind of human-caused positive feedback loop. And so there's there's a couple of big issues right there, all in the same problem. So uh, and then of course it leads to the fact that as as we as temperatures rise and droughts increase and other extreme weather events, Calif go back to California as example. We're all we've all heard of the drought there. There's a little bit of a reprieve going on, but California is in the midst of what NASA announced several years ago as a mega drought. So they're looking at a 50-year time scale 
of, of, of what they have predicted could be how long the drought there persists, the way things are going right now. And, and when it was at its peak several years ago, and farmers are literally not having enough water to grow crops, and you know what a massive percentage of uh, fruits and nuts and vegetables of the entire U.S. market that we rely on come just from the Central Valley of California alone. And so as, as, as climate patterns shift, as rainfall patterns shift in places like um, big areas of Spain, where right now you can grow food, IPCC has already predicted all that rain's going to shift away. People are going to have to find different ways to grow food. And uh, you know, if you look at the longer-term projections, there's just simply not going to be enough area left with these patterns that we're setting in motion where people are going to be able to grow enough food. Technology plays a big role when you think about solutions, right? You think about different different means of uh, energy production. You think about different ways of building sustainable communities and building with uh, climate change in mind and so forth. But I don't know that I see all that much in terms of any uh, fundamental change even being proposed when it comes to agriculture and livestock and things like that. It's almost like we're, we're, we're seeing the fossil fuel industry finally uh, having to compete with solar and with wind power and with these other uh, renewable uh, sources of energy. I don't know that we have a, a comparable element to that in the realm of food production. Yeah, that's a, a very good point. And I know several people who have tried to bring this topic up to have some serious discussion about it. Uh, and and uh, it, it's, it, it has to happen. I mean, we're going to have to find different ways to uh, produce food more sustainably and certainly change some of these really deleterious practices that industrial agriculture is engaged in right now in food production. Um, and it's it's a very serious conversation that has to happen. And yes, unfortunately, it's it's largely not really on the table most of the time from what I can see. Yeah, and I think that that's also, um, you know, it's just like with uh, energy and, you know, oil and gas particularly, you have a tremendous amount of political baggage with that. You have massive lobbying groups, you have major, uh, you know, po political figures who are in the pockets of these lobbying groups and so forth. So this is, again, when, when it comes to climate change, seemingly every aspect of the broader issue is deeply political and it requires technological solutions, it requires social transformation but it also requires political solutions and political action. Right. And, and, and there we come back to the political will issue, because without the political will, uh, none of this is going to happen. None of the massive, wide scale, coordinated government backed and enforced changes that would have to happen in order to have serious mitigation we all know we're not going to stop it. The genie's out of the bottle. We are in for a, a different world. Huge changes are, are upon us and coming, and it's only going to intensify on all fronts. But, you know, there, there was still a chance to have some serious mitigation. And there still could be if all governments could get their act together and actually start responding to the will of the people. Uh, but it's not happening yet. And the type of the, the level in the dramatic uh, uh, amount of um, really globally coordinated response that would be necessary for real mitigation or for real solutions to things like, you know, food production and agriculture issues. Uh, it's just not coming from the governments. It's really at this. I think we're already at a point where we're left. It's up to us individually to start taking it upon ourselves to try to figure out ways to start doing this um, ourselves personally and then within our own community and then branching out from there. Yeah, and it, it of course brings up that um, really difficult uh, debate about, you know, if this is something that can even be mitigated or if it's really just something that uh, is a question of adaptation that we need to simply learn how to adapt to a new, a brave new climate, as it were. Uh, everything from urban planning to agricultural methods to, uh, you know, everything in between that ultimately uh, climate change is here and climate change is an inevitability. It's really uh society and and uh civilization that would have to change well that's right and i, I think i think we're, we're at a stage where adaptation is mandatory all of us are going to have to we're already having to adapt and that's only going to intensify uh mitigation while it's uh questionable as to whether we can even still do that i feel like we are morally obliged i i personally feel morally obliged even writing about what i write about which is so 
cataclysmic and apocalyptic. Uh, even at that, I still feel morally obliged to still do everything I can to try to mitigate it on a personal level. And then again, kind of work out from there in concentric circles as far as uh, reaching people through my writing, giving talks as I sometimes do, uh, giving interviews uh, like this one. I still feel absolutely morally obliged to do everything that I can because, you know, you bring up your son as an example, you know, when, when he grows up and, you know, he's going to know, you know, like, for example, if I was your neighbor and he might come up and say, wow, well, you know, Dar, you were, you were, um, you were around when there was still ice, you know, sea ice in the Arctic and Greenland hadn't started, uh, shedding uh, as much ice as it has been over the last couple of decades. And there were still land terminating glaciers in the, the lower 48 states. And now there aren't any. Uh, and, and parts of the U.S. are now unlivable. And they weren't when you were doing your work. But but really, you knew all this was coming. So why didn't what did you do? And I, I want to be able to say that I did everything that I could. Absolutely right. And I mean, that was something that was a lesson uh, learned early in my experience of activism. I mean, you know, in uh, being an activist around uh, anti-war causes in 2002, I mean, Iraq was the central issue. And uh, despite getting millions of people into the streets and trying to organize uh, sit-ins and strike actions and so forth, I mean, at the end of the day, the war happened, a million or more Iraqis were killed, the country was devastated and so forth. But at the very least, I can certainly say that I did what I could in my limited capacity to at least resist that as much as possible. And certainly it's doubly true for climate change, I would say. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and, and the thing is, too, is um, along the lines of, of this topic, you know, I, I want to just kind of reiterate that there really isn't a future tense, though, of abrupt climate change. I mean, I, I feel like we're already very much in it, that it is already in overdrive and it's going to keep intensifying. But I mean, back to what we were talking about earlier about what's happened up in the Arctic just a couple of weeks ago. I mean, it was on, in late February where up in northern Greenland, where the average high temperature is usually minus 20 Fahrenheit. And uh, they were getting readings up there that were 63 degrees Fahrenheit warmer than average. And so people, oh, well, you know, that's the Arctic, that's crazy, whatever. But just, to, you know, I wrote about this just to put that in a different context to really bring it home. Well, that would, you know, that happened up there in northern Greenland. And that would be the equivalent of if Denver saw a 112 degree Fahrenheit day in February. And that's happening right now. And I think people need to really understand that we are already very far along in abrupt climate change. And it's it's intensifying. And what's happening now in the Arctic, you look at the articles just over the last few days, scientists are sounding the alarm bell. So, you know, you're seeing these titles of news stories, scientists' jaws are dropping, they're amazed, they're, you know, they, they just can't believe what they're seeing up there. And, you know, that's, people need to really take this in and take this seriously. This is, I don't know how much more dramatic it needs to get before people understand, yes, we are already this far along. Adaptation is mandatory. And, you know, things like Hurricane Harvey, which dropped the equivalent rain of one million gallons per Texan, that one storm dropped so much rain that NASA later found that it literally depressed the Earth's crust in that part of Texas three millimeters. Like these are the storms that are upon us now. These are the temperatures that are temperature records that are upon us now. And I think people need to really start thinking about the implications of this. Absolutely. And one of the other points I just want to make before we go to break, too, is that I think oftentimes we get, uh, you know, kind of uh, focused on, you know, scientists, you know, scientists announce this new study saying, you know, everything's terrible or this new study saying climate change is really bad and you should pay attention. But I, I think that too often we forget that there are many, many other uh, corners from which we're hearing these kind of alarm bells. One that I think people might not, uh, you know, pay that much attention to is the insurance 
industry. If you had any, if you had uh, followed some of the internal discussions within the industry and within the trade magazines and so forth out of the insurance industry, they're spending billions of dollars just preparing mitigation plans. They're spending hundreds of millions of dollars every year putting together working groups and forums and symposiums. How the hell is our industry going to survive climate change? So uh, if the insurance industry, that hundreds of billions of dollars a year industry is taking it as an existential crisis, it's probably a good bet that we should be. That's a very good point, Eric. And I actually ran into that firsthand uh, this past May. I was in South Florida researching on my chapter for sea level rise. And what I learned when I was there, that there's already several regional banks in Florida that, that have stopped giving out 30-year mortgages. So again, think about the implications of that. The banks already know it doesn't make sense for them to give a loan that they're not going to get back because they know if they give it, if you live in certain areas of that state, that your house is, is liable to be worthless well inside of 30 years from now. So the banks know it and they're behaving accordingly from a financial perspective. And again, most of the people living in Florida understand what's happening because you've got, they call it uh, sunny day flooding uh, because the uh, governor there is the climate change denying uh, governor who won't allow government employees to say, excuse me, global warming or climate change. So they call it sunny day flooding when you're uh, down in Miami Beach and certain parts of Miami and literally there is seawater right on the sidewalk in the middle of the city and, and it hasn't rained in three weeks. And so the people understand what's going on. Banks are starting to behave, accord, mortgage, mortgage companies are starting to behave accordingly. Uh, and and it's, it's really an amazing thing to see. And, and yet you have the federal government uh, and in, in a lot of the state governments like Florida and some of the others uh, around the country that are just, you know, because of financial reasons and who is backing the politicians just won't go there. And it's really a tragedy because um, one of the scientists I interviewed there, Dr. Harold Wanless at uh, University of Miami, Coral Gables, he said, look, if we had a responsible government right now, and, and this is from a guy who's one of the, sea, the leading sea level rise experts in the world, and he said what they should be doing is they need to be involved buying people out of their homes, organizing a controlled government-backed massive relocation for all the people of South Florida. Because we all know it's coming. It's already starting to happen. And if you're right on the coast, you know that for a fact. And, and we need to be relocating everyone from South Florida, finding other places for them to live. And the government's going to have to be involved in this process so that it's orderly and so that people are reimbursed. And then we have to go back in to where these communities are in these cities. And we need to start uh, dealing with and removing things that are going to be environmental hazards once they go underwater, because otherwise future generations are going to be stuck with this. And instead of that, which seems very careful, well thought out, pragmatic and healthy, uh, we're going to be left with the bottom's going to drop out of the housing market all at once. There's going to be a panicked exodus. People are going to lose everything that they have, and it's going to be absolute chaos. I couldn't agree more. All right, let's uh, let's jump to a break. And on the other side of the break, I want to return to the uh, issue of sea level rise, because I think that's a obviously a big one. And then I want to talk a little bit of politics, a little bit of the uh, tangerine Cheeto Jesus and his uh, uh, motley crew of climate deniers and a whole bunch more. I'm chatting with Dar Jamel. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. We'll be right back. This land is your land. This land is my land. From California, well, to the New York Island. From the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters. I tell you. Uh-huh. 
Here on Counterpunch Radio, I'm chatting with Dar Jamil. Again, uh, if you're not reading the column regularly, you really should be. It's on Truth Out every week. It's always um, an important read, even if sometimes it's quite a bit uh, depressing. But hey, that's the reality, and we want to live in reality. So, uh, Dar, I want to touch on the issue of sea level rise. And I think that one of the reasons why I, I like to talk about it is because um, there's, a, there's a kind of an emotional baggage with that I think because some of the effects that we talk about when it comes to climate change whether it's sea ice or you know uh, climactic changes in wildfire patterns or the polar vortex or whatever these things while severe and obviously having impacts they don't raise the specter of a post-apocalyptic dystopian nightmare like we've seen in oh so many sci-fi films and I think that sea level rise does in a way sort of in a twisted way capture our imaginations and maybe Maybe that's one of the reasons why people think about it so much. So let's talk a little bit just on the abstract level about the importance of uh, sea level rise. And then from a practical level, what your research has shown about the near term, medium term and potentially long term future when considering the impact of sea level rise. Well, the, the implications, you know, the the a, a huge percentage of the global population lives within a very short distance of the coast. Major cities like Miami, Mumbai, New York, New Orleans, uh, Los Angeles, uh, parts of San Francisco, parts of Seattle, just and that's just going around largely the United States. But, uh, you know, think about things like, you know, Bangladesh, where literally tens of millions of people are living just within a few feet of sea level and just kind of you can go around the country and just look at if you add five to seven feet of sea level rise you have several major cities of tens of millions of people together that are going to have to be utterly relocated. I mean, and and just think about that. What happens? How do you relocate New York City? Just think about that. And, you know, the first obvious reaction is, well, it's impossible. Well, there's this is the this is the way that people need to be thinking if you talk to a lot of the lead, leading sea level rise experts. And so I, I mentioned Dr. Harold Wanless. I'll back up and, and talk about Dr. Ben Kurtman, also at University of Miami. Uh, he's an IPCC author, another leading sea level rise expert on, on the global stage. And I interviewed him last May as well. And he's, he said, well, uh, right before I interviewed him, actually NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, had just upgraded their worst case prediction for sea level rise by 2100 up to 8.5 feet. And so that's actually uh, uh, dramatically higher than the IPCC worst case p- prediction, which uh, unless they've amended it and I haven't seen it, which I don't think so, is around one meter uh, is, is their worst case scenario. And that's that's, you know, then you talk to guys like Harold Wanless and that's laughable. But back to Ben Kurtman. So I asked Ben Kurtman, I said, well, you know, let's say, you know, because people won't talk, so many people won't talk about these worst case scenarios. And the reality, these worst case scenarios keep getting upgraded further and further and further. And so they're starting to look increasingly likely. And so what happens if we see uh, 8.5 feet? And he says, well, I know for a fact that my feet, my, my house where I live in Coconut Grove, Florida is at 15.34 feet. So obviously he's put a little thought into this. He says, but that does me little good because I know that if seas rise three feet, I don't have sewage, we don't have electrical power, and I'm having to take a canoe to the grocery store, and I can't drive anywhere at three feet. 
So I need to, you know, I'm worried about that. And if we start talking about these catastrophic levels, like what Harold Wanless predicts, he says, you know, he, he quotes uh, studies from James Hansen that have come out that said we could see 10 feet by 2050. And Harold Wanless, he's more in that camp. He thinks we'll see that and that we could see 15 to 20 feet by 2100, possibly even 30 feet. And if you and I know that that sounds crazy and pretty sci fi. But if you look at now the rate of melting in Antarctica, Eric Rigno, one of the leading glaciologists in Antarctica on the planet, I know that's subjective, but that's my opinion, four years ago came out and said, look, some of these major ice sheets have already come unplugged. There's no stopping them. Western Antarctica alone, that's more than 10 feet of sea level rise right there. And it's already happening. It's just a matter of time. So it's not a matter of is this going to happen? It's, it's just how fast. And so, again, look at South Florida and you can find maps where you can say, OK, what does South Florida look like with two feet, three feet, five feet, seven feet? And it gets very, very staggering very quick when you start looking exactly at, at what's going to happen there and the type of, of reactions that people should be having. Uh, and and it's it's really a pretty amazing situation. And then again, kind of as a little redundant, but talking about those facts, then compared to looking at how the uh, the 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 federal governments are reacting or rather, I think, more precisely, not actually reacting to what's actually happening. And so um, just in, just for example, Miami-Dade County alone in Florida with eight feet sea level rise, you only have 12 percent of the land left. It's it's incredible to think of the implications. And then the other aspect of it, too, is that sea level rise, you know, I mean, this is while it may happen gradually over a longer time span, this is something the impacts of which would be immediate and would be really quite jarring. I mean, the movement of millions of people is not something that can be sustained by any of the systems that are currently in place. It would be a devastating shock to the food system, to uh, health services, to just, uh, you know, communities and, and, and cities and towns that would see a massive influx of, of, of refugees. And then, of course, that would then exacerbate all of the worst problems that already exist. Uh, Everything from, you know, uh, gun violence to God knows what else would begin to erupt. You can see very quickly how quickly uh, the social fabric can begin to break down when you have this kind of extreme climate change event. And it, and it will happen quickly because of a lack of government planning and preparedness. And I mean, again, just to kind of bring it home to people, I mentioned Alaskan villages that are going to have to be moved because of the permafrost that's thawing and melting from underneath them. And to date, we have not had the federal government free up funding. One village up there under the Obama administration got funding to move. And aside from that one village where the funding was approved, of these 30 plus other villages that are going to have to be moved, nothing is happening. So if you've got a government that refuses to basically move a couple of villages up in Alaska and take responsibility for moving a few hundred people further inland and funding that, what are they going to do about South Florida where you're talking about tens of millions of people and all of that infrastructure and entire cities that are going to have to be moved and cleaned up and Turkey Point nuclear plant that has to be decommissioned that's right on the coast, literally just south of Miami, things like this. And that's just not happening. And so Again, it's it's where people need to start thinking. We need to think for ourselves. We need to look at where do I live? What is going to happen here? Am I am in a drought prone area? Is it going to make sense for me to stitch? Think I can stay here for another 10 years or 20 years? And how close to the coast? What sea level? I'm sorry. What elevation am I? How impacted am I, am I going to be by sea level rise? Things like this. I mean, Another way to put it, you know, where I live, there's already a large number of people from California, uh, people obviously who can afford to do it and have the foresight to do it, but that are already moving up here and buying land and buying houses. That's already happening up here. Part of why Seattle's been the fastest growing city country, I'm sorry, the fastest growing city in the country for several years in a row now is because of that. And is is because of a. I mean, it's not just economic, but there's a big California influx coming up here in the wake of the drought, in the wake of the record-setting 
wildfires and mudslides. So there's already, I would confidently argue, sort of a voluntary uh, uh, internal climate migration happening within this country. And then we also have that happening alongside these abrupt mandatory involuntary migrations when Harvey hits Houston and hundreds of thousands of people have to leave their homes for X amount of time and, and other hurricanes that hit Florida this past uh, season as well. And then people being forced from their homes with what's happening in Boston from these uh, bomb cyclones and things like this. So again, it, it's already happening and we know it's going to intensify and we know we have a government that's not going to support us. So we each need to start thinking about these things for ourselves. Indeed, but you actually just brought up with the example that you provided kind of a segue for me in the point that I wanted to bring up, namely that uh, the victims of climate change and, and the climate refugees that are really going to be on the front line, invariably, it's going to be a class issue. So you mentioned people uh, who might be moving up to uh, the Pacific Northwest to get out of the drought zone in California. Pr primarily, I would imagine we're talking about people with money, people with financial means to be able to do stuff like that. But it is going to be the poor, the working class, particularly, especially in the global south, but also in the United States and in the developed uh, countries of the global north as well, those are going to be the people that are going to be most likely most immediately impacted by it and most desperately in need of assistance. And so there is this class dimension to climate change that I think also needs to be part of this broader discussion about not only the impacts of climate change, but impacts on whom and where. Without a doubt, Katrina being the shining example of everything that you just discussed. And, and people are going to need help. And that's why, again, we know it's not going to come from the Trump administration. So again, it has to boil down to a community level. And we've seen some of that resiliency, some of the good news stories, sort of the uh, uh, silver lining of the dark cloud, if you will, in the wake of Hurricane Katrina, where we did see some of these grassroots community groups come together and help people start to figure this stuff out for themselves and help each other get through it. And I think really that's probably a best case scenario of, uh, of sort of an ideal that we can try to aim for going forward. And then anyone who does have the ability to kind of get themselves squared away and then start helping others or maybe taking in some of these people to help out, um, then it will be uh, those people's responsibility, I think, morally to do that as well. We've mentioned the orange elephant in the room a number of times, but obviously <laughs> there's no there's no discussion to be had about climate change in 2018 that doesn't in some way involve uh, Donald Trump and the Trump administration. So uh, I know you've written a bit about this. I want to talk a little bit about uh, the impact that the Trump administration is having on uh, issues surrounding climate change, but the environment generally. Can you talk a little bit about the uh, the the lengths to which his administration has gone really? to deliberately hamper any efforts at addressing climate change uh, around crafting policies and so forth. Can you talk a little bit about what the what, what Trump and his people have done just in the last year? Well, I mean, it's this is clearly a fossil fuel funded uh, administration. I mean, we have former Exxon CEO Rex Tillerson as the secretary of state. Uh, and it, that's part of the dealings with Russia, keeping a very uh, open channel there with the oil and gas dealings there and keeping U.S. access to some of their fields and, and vice versa. And, and so this is an administration that clearly everything that they're doing, it's just a blatant uh, handover to the fossil fuel industry of, of the reins of what's going to be done as far as oil and gas drilling and exploration. And we see this it's going to be another huge round of fracking coming up dom predominantly centered in far west texas where they're going to be going into the alpine field is the name of it out there uh nearby a little town called alpine texas nearby where i used to live actually and the whole area is going to get fracked uh for and again this is these are the dregs for, of the, the race for what's left if you will uh so the administration's charging for it on that trying to open up as much of the offshore coast of, of the of the lower 48 as well as alaska for offshore drilling uh that's in motion the opening up of the arctic national wildlife refuge which just came came along as part of the so-called uh tax bill that was was passed and then of course the denial efforts you know bringing in scott pruitt 
former attorney general of Oklahoma who had sued the EPA, I don't know how many times, putting him now head of the EPA with the job of basically dissembling any and all regulation that stands in the way of uh, polluters in the fossil fuel industry. And so he's, you know, literally the scrubbing of websites of climate change from every place from the EPA to uh, uh, the, the Department of Interior. And we can go on down a long list, including even uh, the National Institutes for Health. So it's it's really been a full court press by this administration to deny, to sweep it under the rug. And then, of course, trot out uh, the big orange Cheeto clown uh, where I wrote about recently when he he told he, during an interview with Piers Morgan on Britain's ITV where he said, quote, the ice caps were going to melt. They were going to be gone by now, but now they're setting records. So just these amazing fictions that are literally the opposite of what's actually happening, which, of course, he has a reputation of doing that with everything now. But but saying that about what's happening in the Arctic uh, particularly given the context of what we've just discussed. I mean, I think that highlights uh, the absurdity and it would be laughable if we knew that literally millions of people's lives weren't weren't at stake and, and, and going to be suffering because of it. Yeah, it, it certainly does have the uh, Nero playing the fiddle while Rome burns kind of feel to it. But um, one of the things that, that I find um, kind of... Uh, I don't want to say it's underreported because it has been reported on, but maybe maybe uh, minimized, I think, to a large degree, is that it's not just that Trump has put these these degenerates like Pruitt uh, at EPA and Zinke at uh, Interior and so forth. It's that there has been a full-blown purge of even the middle-tier ranks of a lot of these, uh, admit, you know, these, uh, these agencies and these organizations. I mean, these are t- technocrats, for lack of a better word, who's, who have made careers working on climate change and climate change efforts or on various other uh, environmental regulation issues or on agriculture regulation or pollution or what have you. And these people have been quite quite literally purged. Some of them have had their careers destroyed. Others have had to go public and leave uh, the government for various reasons in the private sector and so forth. So I think that it's not just, you know, putting these kind of uh, people in charge of these agencies. It's a top to bottom purge. And that kind of worries me because I wonder how many uh, really competent people are left. Well, that's exactly right. And that's precisely what's been happening. And that is the goal. And uh, it is their goal to basically just clear all these people out. I mean, it's a corporate giveaway, you know, literally Mussolini's definition of fascism where, you know, corporate power in the state essentially become one. And this country is dangerously close to achieving that (laughs) to a level that maybe hadn't been seen and possibly ever. And there are rumblings of totalitarianism. And clearly Trump has a fondness for authoritarians around the world, you know, saying recently, as he did just in the past week, that, you know, Xi's basically power grab of China and giving himself, um, you know, an undetermined amount of time as the head of the state. Trump saying, making the quip, well, maybe that would be something good for us to try out here. Clearly, this is this is along the lines of uh, the thinking of this madman. And, and it is by design that the complete dissemblage of these institutions that do environmental monitoring and environmental regulation and, uh, you know, try to control the amount of pollution and take care of people's health. That's that's what government is supposed to do. And it's literally being tossed to the wayside so that it's kind of a no holds barred, you know, the race for what's left. Let's make as much profits as we can while there's still a market for oil and gas around the planet because they know that this market's going away. Other countries like, particularly European countries and and others even in Asia are going to great lengths now to start to prepare themselves to get off of fossil fuels. So they see this as their time, like this is the last time for one last big party. Let's stuff as much of the loot into our pockets as we can. And that's exactly what this administration is facilitating. No doubt about it. And you mentioned China. And I just want to touch on that before we before we have to end our conversation, because China is kind of an interesting case in all of this, because on the one hand, China is still very much a polluter, still very much uh, involved in things like, you know, and we we're just talking about this last week with Patrick Bond on this show, uh, coal uh, being mined in Africa for the purposes of export and things, things of that nature. At the very same time, it's almost every day I'm reading a news story about China, 
now by far leading the world in solar production. China, uh, uh, Chinese military out to, what was it, 86,000 troops to plant a million trees uh, to uh, help with uh, smog control, air pollution, and also climate change-related uh, desertification and other issues. So China is kind of this interesting case where it is a polluter. Obviously, it's an engine of industrial production, obviously has an impact on carbon uh, emissions. And at the same time, China seemingly going in the opposite direction of the United States, where they're uh, mobilizing a tremendous amount of state resources in order to address at least some of these issues. Now, obviously, there's a give and take in all of that. And it's not, you know, a perfectly utopian vision of the, you know, Chinese development, but they are at least headed, I think, in that direction. And the United States seems to be just this horribly reactionary, utterly backward backwater of a country. Well, we're, we're certainly behaving that way. And it's really, you know, we, we were poised for a while there to this country who has played a role in developing some of the leading technologies for solar and wind power. We could have literally led the country down those roads and sort of led, uh, you know, a, a, a really shift over into renewables. And instead, by doing what we just described earlier of what the Trump administration is doing, we've basically punted that. And China very smartly has taken that upon themselves and are essentially modeling. Uh, yeah, you know, despite all the discrepancies that you pointed out, at least in those ways, they're modeling of how a state should handle this crisis and be forward thinking about how to take care of their people. Yeah, and, and you don't go from an industrial, you know, mega, mega producer to, a, you know, perfectly green, sustainable, you know, superpower overnight. It's obviously a long and drawn out process. But I just I, I look at what the United States is doing and I look at what China and, and, and other countries around the world are doing. And it and it really I mean, not that I not that I feel personally responsible for U.S. policy, but it certainly is embarrassing. It really is. You know, it really is. And the, the rest of the world's paying very close attention and taking note. And again, it just underscores how in this country, people listening to this, you know, we need to think for ourselves and we need to take responsibility for our own situation, because clearly we are in a country where we're not going to be able to rely on the government uh, to do that. And I think, you know, if there's any any takeaway from this interview, aside from just some of the information we shared, but, you know, that's that's where we are in this country, and it's another thing that I think all of us have to be very honest about. Absolutely right. Last question before I let you go. When you're on your book tours and, and, and giving your lectures and, and so forth, uh, presumably people come up to you after the event. And I'm just curious, when you when from time to time you get a young person, a young activist, maybe a high school or a college student, come up to you to talk to you about that, what kind of things do you tell them in terms of how they should be maybe thinking about these issues or approaching them and applying them to their lives? Because this is an intergenerational struggle we're talking about and, and an, you know, a multi-century struggle. And, and the passing down, I think, from one generation to the next of information, knowledge and, and, and strategies, I think is really key, just as it is with anti-war activism or any other kind of activism, certainly true with climate change. So can you just leave us with a little bit of a flavor for how you speak to particularly young people about this issue. Just yesterday, I spoke to a small high school class over here in Port Angeles, nearby where I live. And after talking briefly about climate, which of course, it was a lot of very difficult information. And one of the kids said, so are we just completely screwed? Or like, is there something we can do? And I said, yes, <laughs> yes to both. Uh, we are off the cliff. Uh, we are living in a new planet that's going to get very, very intense, much more intense than it already is. Uh, and we're not going to change that. So that's the screwed part. And then we are obviously very morally obliged to still do absolutely everything we can since our government refuses to uh, for the sake of future generations, as well as for us and our neighbors. And, and uh, again, just reiterating kind of the moral obligation of doing that for taking care of ourselves, but also because simply it is the right and the moral thing to do. And, uh, you know, during these times where the country's literally coming apart at the seams, I think the onus is on all of us to have a, as much integrity as we can and to, you know, really take that burden on ourselves and, and, and especially do so with the younger generations in mind. 
No doubt about it. Very well said. Uh, we're going to have to leave it there. Dar Jamel, thank you so much for coming on the show. Again, listeners, you got to be following uh, Dar's column on Truthout every week. Uh, you can find it there and absolutely pick up a copy of the forthcoming book, The End of Ice. That's going to be from the new press. Dar Jamel, thanks so much for coming on Counterpunch Radio. I really appreciate it. Very much my pleasure, Eric. Thank you so much. And thank you, listeners. As always, I'll speak to you again real soon.